Thank you, Terry, for that uh, very well-rounded introduction that took up the first two paragraphs of my talk. So uh, Terry's already covered that bit. Uh, we're back in James, and we're very pleased uh, to be so. So just remember, when we were looking at the book of James, we were looking at uh, a letter written to groups of believers who were scattered in communities all over the region and who were subject to uh, economic um, difficulty, pressure, and religious opposition, and a sense of uh, feeling excluded and feeling um, exploited. They were under real pressure. That's the context of everything that James is saying, people under pressure. So this morning, if you feel under pressure for whatever reason, then there's something significant from God coming for you. God is saying, keep going. I'm with you. This isn't a passage that particularly talks about having massive adventures of faith and stepping out and all this sort of stuff. This is a passage that really cries out, keep going. Keep going. I'm with you. As we start, I'd love to ask a question. Uh, if you've been a Christian for 20 years or more, could you put your hands up? Okay. And could you leave your, no, leave your hands up, leave your hands up. And then if you've been, a, could you keep your hands up if you've been a Christian for 30 years or more? Could you leave your hands up if you've been a Christian for 40 years or more? Now, I know I'm in danger here because we're starting to reveal ages and stuff like that. I'm going to give one more. Could you leave your hands up if you've been a Christian for 50 years or more? Let's honor these people. We want to honor you this morning for giving us courage by standing firm in the faith. All of you who've just put your hand up. doesn't matter where we are on our journey of faith, we can see people who've stood firm. Now, I can guarantee you, those people who had their hands up for 40 and 50 years, I can guarantee you 100% that they have faced trials and difficulties in their life. And I've got nods and smiles and frowns at me to prove that that is the case. It's not all adventure, although adventure is important. Perseverance is at the heart of the Christian walk. And sometimes just making it through is the fruitfulness, is the uh, glorious proving true of the good news that we've accepted and being able to tell that story at the end of it all. So this morning, if you find yourself under maybe financial pressure or perhaps a sense of opposition to your faith or maybe you have issues with health or issues with employment or you're under pressure due to relational difficulty in your family or in your friendship group, if there's that sense of, uh, of pressure and difficulty for you in your faith, there's a word from God here this morning which is keep going. I'm with you. And uh, this isn't in my notes, but as we were worshipping, God uh, 
brought to mind for me a memory of when I took my kids up the lawley for the first time. And uh, Zach's not very big because he's only three. So that's quite little legs for a hill, if you can imagine. But it was quite interesting. As we were walking together, he was doing all right as we walked up. But I don't know if you know the lawley, but there's a series of summits. And every time you think you've got to the top, actually, there's another one until you actually reach the top. And we got up to the first bit, and he sort of thought he'd made it. And then when he realized there was another bit to go to, uh, suddenly he became discouraged. And so there was a little bit of a, come on, mate, we can do this. Let's keep on going. We can do it. And he did all right for a little bit longer. And then, and then there were a few bumps in the road, and he, he tripped over at one point, and then that took a little while to get him back going again. Uh, and then it felt like the other kids were running off ahead, and he was left on his own. And then, uh, and then suddenly he was chatting to me, and it was, it, it was very much like, uh, you know, oh, Daddy, my legs are so tired. I don't think my legs are working anymore sort of thing. So, uh, so there were moments where it was too steep for him. It was moments where there was boggy ground. You know, there were moments where, as his father, I needed to pick him up and carry him. There were moments where his sister just needed to grab him by the hand and say, come on, Zaki, we can do this. And, uh, and together, we... Um, we made it to the top of the lawley. And so I've got this photo, and it's only just dawned on me now, the look on his face. He's got, it's probably like the most beautiful photo of him smiling that I've got. And it's like the look on his face as he knows that he's actually made it, and he's persevered, and he's got to the top, and he's just so chuffed. And I was just singing down there, and I had this picture of him with this big smile, and I felt God say to me, to say to you this morning, if you're under pressure, if you can feel it closing in around you, that daddy's with you, that your father's with you. And he's going to be holding your hand and he's going to be carrying you in parts, but he's going to be encouraging you. He's going to be telling you that you can do it as you persevere. So into this backdrop of pressure and opposition, the book of James goes into all kinds of different subjects that we've already looked at. Facing trials, how we act, showing humility, putting our faith into action, not showing favoritism. There's loads of relevant subjects that we've been wrestling with. And it feels almost like the, um, the more pressure they were under, the more some of these things became issues. James doesn't just say to him, oh, don't worry, chaps, I know you're under a lot of pressure, you'll be okay. I realize you're just letting off a bit of steam, I can quite understand it. He doesn't seem to be saying that. He seems to be pleading with them. Listen, I know this is tough, but in that toughness, stand firm. Don't let bad attitudes or bad actions sneak out just because you're under pressure. Hold even tighter to the faith and persevere. And it's incredible, really, to think that verses written 1,900-odd years ago would be so relevant and so compelling to us today. And the reason for that is that our condition, our situation as humans hasn't actually changed much in that time. For all the changes in living and technology and understanding and knowledge, the basic condition of the human heart and how we respond to pressure and how we feel when stuff goes wrong is the same now as it was then. So let's read our passage together. So this is James 5 and from verse 7. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. 
See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you'll be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy above all. Brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. So in this section, James is really appealing to them for what you could describe as patient endurance, waiting patiently for the coming of the Lord. And there seems to be an outworking to this which goes in two directions. First of all, this, this patience doesn't seem to kind of retaliate for the wrongs that they were facing. It's not aimed against the people who were oppressing them. It's not uh, fighting back in any particular way. We leave the justice element of our situation up to God because Jesus is coming back. When Jesus comes back, he will judge the living and the dead and there will be justice for all of us for all time. Absolute and total justice. So we don't need to take things into our own hands in that sense because he's coming back and he'll sort it all out. So that's the kind of the first thing that there's not an aggressive fighting back heart in the Christian believer because we know ultimately the fight belongs to the Lord himself. But secondly, our patience works out in our life through endurance and through perseverance. And he gives this example of patience, talking about an illustration of the farmer. And uh, this would have like, struck a real chord with them. It would have really resonated with them as he talks about the early and the late rains uh, in Israel that would produce the, uh, the precious fruit. When the people of Israel were in Egypt, They were in an agricultural situation where, uh, with the river Nile coming past and the delta, there was always quite a lot of water. And so they had a series of irrigation channels. So if you needed water for your crops at the right time, what you needed to do was yourself to take it into your own hands and to open up the channel and allow your fields to be irrigated. Then you would close the channel again at the correct time to make sure that there wasn't too much water. In a sense, you didn't have to worry about it that much because it was completely under your control. Yet when God took them out and, and took them to Israel, suddenly they were in a situation where they relied on the rain to come at the right time in the season for their harvest to be successful. God wanted his people to learn to trust him for their daily bread. And he promised them, if you abide by my law, then I will bless your land and there will be the rains that you need for an abundant harvest. So the farmers in Israel would have to prepare the fields and would have to get things ready and would have to start their work 
even before there was any sign that there was the water that they needed. They needed to prepare ahead of time in faith that the rains would come. The farmer set to work and then patiently waited for the rains that God had promised. And James encourages these believers, have patience that looks like that, that carries on with the preparation, that carries on with the work, that carries on following the instruction, even though you haven't yet seen the first starts of the rain, but because God has promised that he will provide it. Keep on going because Jesus is coming back. Just like you waited for the rain and then it came, so we wait for Jesus to come back and then he will come. Strengthen your hearts. And it sounds uh, from what he's written that there was an expectation that Jesus is coming back soon. He describes Jesus' return as near in verse 9. He's sort of at the door and uh, for us, I wonder, you know, sort of 1,900-odd years later, is there a little bit of a temptation to think, well, actually, Jesus hasn't come back for this long, so he's, he's probably not coming back sort of for that long in the future, or, well, who knows, really? Uh, you know, at that time, they thought he was coming back soon, but obviously he's not, so we'll be fine, kind of thing. He's probably not coming back for a while yet. We'll be all right. But James isn't predicting that, Uh, Jesus is coming back at a particular time or a particular place. He's encouraging them to live in the light of the truth that he is coming back and that he could come back at any moment. To be honest with you, I think that because there's some fairly sort of out there teaching on the end times and Jesus coming back and people trying to predict it and different religious groups have gone a bit weird over that through all of history it almost becomes a subject that like, we don't want to talk about as much because otherwise you sound like those people who were on their soapbox a little bit. But James is very matter-of-fact about it. He's emphasizing that we should live as though Jesus is coming back imminently. And I think that leaves us with a few questions today. Certainly even preparing this, it's left me with a bit of soul-searching and a bit of heart-searching. What have you not done yet, or not said yet, that you really want to have said or done before Jesus comes back? That's a tough question. What person have you not really told how much you appreciate them? What person do you really love and value, but you've never really had an opportunity to share your faith with them? What relationship in your life is is broken, but you'd like to see it restored. And I think the message that's coming out of uh, living as though Jesus could be coming back at any moment, it's let's do it now. Let's be patient with unfinished business in one way. No, let's not be patient with unfinished business. The farmer was still hard at work in his fields. He was still active. We're to be patient in the troubles It's the troubles that are momentary. So, having read this scripture and allowed it to sort of speak to me, uh, I was very mindful that I've got got quite a few friends uh, locally, but there was a few friends, mostly uh, sort of male mates I've made over the years, who I've never had an opportunity to share my faith with. 
and who, I, like, they know I'm a Christian and we talk about it, but you know what I mean, the bit where you really have permission to express what you believe. And, uh, and I've never done anything like invite them on Alpha course because I've been waiting for the opportunity. And, uh, and I read this, uh, this chapter and it was the start of a process of God really stirring me up and just thinking, I'm not under an unfair pressure or an unfair obligation, but actually I want to take that opportunity now while it's in front of me. Uh, and so uh, last week I plucked up the courage when the, the Chronicle newspaper had come out uh, and I sent messages to five of my friends uh, and I said, look, I'm not sure if you've seen the paper, but this is about what I believe and I'd love you to come as my guest. Feel free to talk to me about it. And uh, I've not heard back from any of them whether they're going to come or not. It's not a story like that. It's just a story about what I needed to do because I felt that God was provoking me. If Jesus is coming back and the time is short that we have to show love to people and to tell people and to express our faith, then let's get on and do it. So I submit that to you because within the last seven days, he's taken me on that journey, partly through this scripture. In verse 10, James reminds uh, the readers of their heroes, the prophets. As an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Prophets who they regarded as heroes. And they regarded them as heroes precisely because they showed such perseverance. They were opposed. They were they were mocked, they were rejected, uh, abused, they were even killed for speaking the word of God. And James is pointing to them and saying, see how they faithfully endured. They're your heroes, follow in their footsteps. And uh, if we could just have those pictures up, I think in this country, like that's just, to some of us, that's just a picture of some old dudes, isn't it, really? But uh, this picture... In the United Kingdom, John Wycliffe, Hugh Latimer, and Nicholas Ridley, to name but three of the heroes of the faith, of the Christian faith in the United Kingdom. Great heroes in our nation, and the cost that they paid in that generation, and the endurance that they showed is just astonishing. So if you've not heard of them before, what I suggest you do, just make a quick note in your phone now and go home and Google them and read about their life and read about how they stood firm for the faith that we hold today, that we're able to share publicly today, that we have the freedom of worship for today. John Wycliffe, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. Don't get confused with a politician also called Nicholas Ridley because that might not make a lot of sense. Okay, can we move on with the old dudes and we'll get back to the, uh, the scripture. Next up, James brings our attention to the book of Job and to the life of Job. Now, who enjoys reading the book of Job? Okay, so that's the four of us. Uh, it does feel like Job gets a bit of a raw deal. It does feel like everything goes wrong for him. And then to top it off, the people who are supposed to be his mates 
start accusing him of having all these unconfessed sins. And that's why everything's going wrong for him. And he's like, wait a minute, that's not true. Uh, That's really harsh. And then at the moment he does that, they like lay into him even more. Now we see in the book of Job that his responses weren't 100% what they should have been. But he never abandons his faith in God. He wanted God to explain what was happening, but he never stopped trusting him. And James here seems to be uh, calling to uh, light um, the outcome of what happened to Job. So you've heard of Job's perseverance and you've seen what the Lord finally brought about. Finally, at the end of it all, with hindsight, you see what the Lord did. God vindicated Job. God defended Job to those friends. God restored Job's position to even greater than what it was before. And there were times in the life of Job where everything just looked so dark and without hope. And yet God proved himself to be full of compassion and full of mercy. Because as he stood firm, he was able to reach the summit with God and look back and see where the Lord had taken him. And as he saw where the Lord had taken him, yes, there were extreme bumps in the road. But he had such a depth of understanding of a God. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. One day... I want to sit in a congregation of believers and raise my hand for 50 years of faith and whatever has happened between now and then to be able to say at the end of it all, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Okay, so then we get two warnings from James about our speech during times of trouble. The first one is... Uh, In verse 9, don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters. Of all the things to pick out at this point, why does he pick out grumbling? Grumbling doesn't sound like it's sort of that high up on the scale of bad reactions to being under pressure. In fact, to be honest with you, when things are really harsh, I I understand why why you have a whinge. I, I completely understand that you know you've got to get it off your chest haven't you that's kind of that's good for us isn't it James seems to be suggesting that in times of pressure grumbling is a really it's a sin against the brotherly love and unity that we should be holding on to because they were grumbling about one another So instead of in times of pressure coming together and having all those beautiful one another's of the New Testament coming to life in the dark circumstances, instead of that coming together, if at that point we start grumbling about one another, that breaks the unity. It leaves us more isolated. Now I should say at this point, we're not talking about... uh, like being open and honest with each other, about feeding back to people, about sharing our heart with people. 
uh, I'm finding this difficult about something you said or something you did uh, and, and expressing our feelings to the person in the right way. That's so important. That's a sign of a healthy church. We need to be open-hearted with one another, to be sharing and listening and helping each other to grow in how we respond and interact with one another. But this is grumbling. This is either talking to the wrong person or talking to the person in the wrong way. Do you see what I mean? Either the wrong person completely or the right person but in the wrong way. And I guess the ultimate question about whether it's a grumble or not is at the core of our being, are those words coming out because we love ultimately, are we saying something because we love? That's like the litmus test, how we can test whether we're grumbling or not. Are we speaking because my love for you in this situation means we've got to sort this out, even if I've got to bring you something that might be difficult to hear? Is there love in the situation? I think also there's a question here as well. Um, to do with, like, what are the percentage of the words that we speak to people? So I thought Angela Kem was so great last week where she was talking about how each of us have diamonds inside us, and diamonds are often hidden behind sort of layers of rubble and layers of coal. So uh, we might need to dig out the coal in order to get to the diamonds, but we don't have to go pointing at the coal all of the time. You know, I think every person in this room would say that we respond better when people come to us with stuff that we could do better or, or examples of, uh, of things that we've done. We, we respond so much better if that's the same person who also tells us when it goes well. If the percentage of our speech to each other is honoring and positive and encouraging and then, not that we have to earn the right and say one nice thing for every bad thing. It's not like that. But just if people know that you're on side, that you believe in them, that you can see God's hand in them, that you know where the, where the diamonds are. And actually, let me help you because you might not have realized that this is how people respond when you do this. Do you know what I mean? Is that making sense? Just the percentage of how we speak about things. And so finally, in verse 12... We see like a mirror of Matthew 5 where Jesus says, don't take oaths, don't swear by things, you shouldn't have to. Just mean it when you say yes and mean it when you say no. Now, some people might uh, say yes and have absolutely no intention of ever doing it, but I'd hate to think that a Christian would even think that was remotely possible. I think we've probably got to be a little bit careful where We have every intention of something happening, of trying to do something. So we say, yes, I'll try and help you, or yes, I'll try and sort it. And then we're not able to. And so sometimes as Christians, because we know saying, no, that's never going to work, might disappoint someone, then we almost try and say something positive, like, yes, we'll give it a go, when actually we might not want to give it a go, and that sort of thing. And so I think we need to be careful when we talk to people that we're not giving them good intention that's not actually going to lead to anything because then they'll be just as disappointed as if we'd said no. I also think that this is uh, 
where organisation comes in too, because if our yes is yes and our no is no, then we probably need a to-do list so that when we say yes, we'll do stuff, then we do actually remember to do it. That's just a bit of a personal discipline for all of us. Above all, above all, it seems like the pinnacle of the whole thing. It seems like the, the, the summit of the mountain of his uh, argument is above all, be truthful. Be honest, be real, even when you're under pressure. Being under, an, under pressure is not an excuse to mouth off and to say something you didn't mean, but, oh, it's just the heat of the moment. There's no hint of that even being remotely okay. Be truthful, be honest, be full of love. And we can see how, like, being dishonest or being caught having not told the whole truth or whatever, we can see how damaging that can be for uh, politicians. We can see how damaging that can be for large businesses. And we can even see how damaging that can be in churches. We need to continue to be real. So when there is pressure, the overarching thing that James is calling to us to, right the way through in all these different angles, he's saying, stand firm. Hold on, pull together. A really interesting example we see of this working out is in Acts 6 and in the early church. And, and Pentecost has happened, the Holy Spirit has been poured out, they're preaching, and loads of people are coming to faith. And this is often you know, held up as like, this is the awesome time in the life of the church. This is when church is really happening. This is the kind of church that we need to get back to. This is the sort of spiritual experience that we need to emulate. The beginning of the book of Acts is where it's at. And I've got so much time for that way of thinking. I want to live a life that looks and sounds and smells like those early chapters of Acts in many ways. But in Acts 6, we see that the believers were distributing uh, food amongst fellow believers within the church because they'd faced such opposition and they were starting to face poverty. Opposition and poverty were existing for Christian believers even during those times of great adventure. Do we see opposition or poverty as a sign of failure or as a sign of God leaving us? Or not being with us? That's an interesting question. So there was a daily food bank that was operating within the early church where they were sharing with one another, especially with the widows and with the people in need within the church. Has the church in this nation and in this generation got so self-sufficient? Is there like a stigma that's grown within the church about giving or receiving help? that's financial? That's a question. Are we sometimes unwilling to ask? Are we sometimes unwilling to offer? Right in the heart of the early church, they were very clearly sharing. There was wealthy people in the church in Jerusalem. Barnabas himself had sold a field and they were distributing the money to the believers who had need. So there was resources and there was need within the fellowship. But then in Acts 6 we see that the, the believers had started to fall out with each other and actually start to grumble because the widows from a Greek background felt that they were being overlooked in favor of the widows 
from a Jewish background when the food was giving out. So they had to appoint some new leaders, called them deacons, to try and sort this all out and preserve the unity of the church. So let's get this right. These new believers, in what many people would describe as the most exciting, most powerful, most anointed, most fruitful period in the history of church ever, salvation, outpouring of the Holy Spirit, anointed preaching. When those believers experienced pressure, when they experienced opposition, when there was economic difficulty, they started to fall out with one another, primarily over ethnic lines, over race. And there was grumbling within the community. When the pressure came on, their differences came out, not their unity. They pulled further apart, not together until the church sorted it out and were able to maintain the unity in the fellowship and all the fruitfulness that followed. So this whole passage in James seems to be giving the impression that when we are under pressure, then those relational difficulties and entanglements and grumbling and, 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 and the way we use our tongue, the way we talk about, no, let's close together, let's draw together. When we're under the cosh, that's the time to stick together when we're hard-pressed on every side. And why do we do that? Why do we do that? Do we do that because it's a rule? Do we do that because every other Christian believer is never going to do anything said or done that might irritate us? Is it because we're all perfect? Or is it because the Lord Jesus himself is coming back? And he's coming back imminently. And he's seeking out a bride that reflects him and his heart and his love and his mercy and his grace and his compassion and his peace. He doesn't want to come back to a bride that's arguing amongst itself. He wants to come back to a bride who is sticking together even in the greatest adversity. He's coming back to defend us so we don't have to fight for ourselves. He's fighting our battles. God knows. He is with us so we can stand firm. God is full of compassion and mercy and he's going to prove all of that when he comes back. So in the troubles that we face, in the pressure that we face, our hope ultimately, and the reason why we sit tight and we don't make things worse in this earth is because Jesus is coming back. And where I started this morning with the picture for people who are under pressure this morning, facing real difficulty, not for a second am I making light of what you're facing. It's easy to say it. It's more difficult to do it. We want to encourage you. We want to be alongside you in that pressure. We want us as a community to draw together in the pressure that you're facing. And we want to encourage you that the Father is holding out his hand to you today to walk you through whatever you're facing. 
And ultimately, our hope comes because Jesus is coming back. I'd love to invite Charlie and the team to come forward. And there's a very specific song that they're going to end with to do with the return of Jesus coming on the clouds and what it might be like for us then. But before we do that, I'd like to pray. And I'd like to pray for you, especially if you feel at this moment you're in that place of pressure, economic, relational, opposition, health. If you feel hard-pressed right now, then can we stand together? Stand together first. And if you feel that you are in that place of being under pressure, I'd love it if you could just raise your hand as a sign of uh, opening that situation and yourself to God. I'd love you to just raise your hand. And I want to pray for all of us, but I'd love to specifically... Okay, that's fine. You can put your hand down now. That's fine. Father, I want to pray of, I want to thank you for that image of a small child being encouraged in difficult circumstances to persevere and to reach the summit. Father, I want to thank you for the number of hands that went up right at the beginning that shows that we can endure that we can persevere, that we can continue in our faith for many, many years. And Lord, just seeing those hands, I don't know the circumstances people are facing, but those under pressure in this room, I want to pray for a day-by-day revelation of your love and your grace and your compassion and your mercy. I want to pray that, like at the end of it all, Job could look back and he knew that you'd spoken on his, in his defense and you'd vindicated him. Lord God, I pray that one day each person here would know your vindication and defense. And Lord, I want to pray for us as a church community to deal with one another well when we're under pressure and to draw close together and to be a united bride. Lord Jesus, we don't know when you're coming back, but Lord Jesus, when you do, We want to be ready. We want to be full of your spirit. We want to be stepping out for you. And Lord, even this week, would you give us opportunities to step out for you in a new way. In Jesus' name, amen.